Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is uh, truly a privilege to be here with you this morning. Uh, as, as Luke has shared, uh, we, we go back a, a little ways, and I, I truly count Luke as an older brother in the faith. Uh, he is a, a wise man, and you are blessed. Uh, I can say this unequivocally. You are blessed to have him as your pastor. Uh, he loves you so deeply. He labors in prayer for you. Uh, as Paul says, he is anxious for you and for your growth in Christ. And uh, he, he has shared so many of the things that God has done in this church. And uh, it's quite a privilege to be here this morning with you to see those things in person. Uh, so we are humbled. My wife and I are, uh, are glad to be here with you. Our church in Carson City uh, is very similar in a lot of ways to Carson Valley Bible Church. And we do pray for you regularly as part of our, our Sunday service. Uh, the body of Christ should be one, right? Building one another up in Christ. And so that's our hope this morning is to do that. Uh, well, I know we just prayed, but we really cannot pray enough. Would you pray with me uh, for God's help as we go to His Word? Our Lord and our God, our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You are not a God who is silent, but a God who has spoken once and for all. A God whose Word does not falter or fail, but contains everything that we need for salvation, for life, for godliness. How gracious You are, O Lord, to give us Your Word. Lord, we confess, uh, Lord, our weakness, that apart from you, we cannot understand your word, we cannot accept it, and we certainly cannot do it. And so, Lord, we, we seek your help this morning. Holy Spirit, come, give us understanding of the words of Scripture. Lord, give me help in proclaiming it rightly and accurately. And Lord, would you, uh, would you build up your people in Christ? May they rest in Him more than ever before. Our God, we thank You for Your grace, for the work of Christ, for the present ministry of the Spirit. We pray these things in the name of our Savior. Amen. Amen. We'll turn with your Bibles uh, to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. That's where we'll be this morning. Galatians chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, I think that's on page 973. Galatians chapter 3. It was a normal day in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31st, 1517. Uh, The merchants were doing business as usual in the town square. Church bells were ringing to mark the hour. Livestock pulling carts through the streets. Children playing. A a rather ordinary day, or or so it would seem. A stocky monk walked down to the center of town where the cathedral would be, hammer in hand, and with a few short swings, attached a long piece of paper. And unbeknownst to Martin Luther, that paper would be the spark of the Protestant Reformation. Today, of course, is October 31st, 504 years ago. God used this flawed man, to create quite a wildfire of change. And Martin Luther's 95 Theses were primarily concerned with indulgences, paying money to shorten your time in purgatory. Uh, But it wouldn't be long before the Reformation was not focused on that, but rather on justification. The question of how a person becomes righteous before God. 
By their own works? Or by faith? Even though we're 504 years away from the Reformation, this is not an outdated question. It's not irrelevant to ask how man may be right with God. Because the natural human tendency, uh, really in any place and in any time, is to try to work our way to heaven. Right? That's what we're naturally inclined to do. That's how sin has rewired us. But as we'll see this morning from our text, from Paul's words in Galatians, right standing before God cannot come from our works, but only through faith in the work of Christ Jesus. Let's turn to our text. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. Paul writes this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Now we need to have a little bit of context here about Paul's letters to the Galatians. Uh, In chapter 1, Paul describes the importance of holding to the gospel once and for all delivered, never turning away from it. And he shares with the Galatians his own uh, journey to salvation in Christ. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul describes how he was sent to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He also describes the conflict he had with Peter uh, about forcing Gentile Christians to live according to secondary Jewish laws. And it's from there that Paul starts addressing the issue of justification. How it's not through works of the law, but by faith in Christ that a person's made righteous before God. And As we get to chapter 3, Paul begins by addressing the false teachers that had started influencing the Galatians to trust in works of the law to make them right before God. And our text this morning continues that confrontation. Our first point, the first thing Paul addresses is that justification by works is cursed. Verse 10. Justification by works is cursed. Paul begins verse 10 with a very heavy, strong statement. He says, all, meaning as many as each person, every single one without exception who relies on works of the law is under a curse. Now we might be tempted to think that Paul is uh, maybe critiquing good works in general. Saying don't give too much attention to those, but that's not the case. Paul's issue, just like Martin Luther, is relying upon the law, doing the works of the law to save you, to bring you to heaven. That's the problem Paul has, trusting your own works to bring you to heaven. We might also be tempted to think that Paul is saying that that somehow God's law is at fault for not being able to justify us. Maybe there's something wrong with the law, but that's not the case either. Paul himself says in Romans 7.12 that the law is holy and the commandment is righteous and good. It doesn't sound like Paul has an issue with the law. No, the law is not the problem. It's not the law's fault. 
that relying upon the law puts us under a curse. What Paul's really driving at is this. The law cannot save us. The law cannot save us. The problem's not with good works. It's not with the law. The problem is with our tendency to think we can gain God's grace by obeying the very law that reveals our sin when we break it. As Paul says, there is a curse that comes upon everyone who breaks God's law. And when Paul talks about a curse, he's not talking about, you know, a witch doctor or, or, or voodoo magic or something superstitious like that, or a magic spell. No, this is the legal condemnation of God upon sin. God's pronouncement. That's what Paul means when he mentions this. And he, he quotes in verse 10 from Deuteronomy 27, 26, which the nation of Israel, after uh, they're getting ready to enter the promised land, Getting ready to cross the river Jordan. They've just heard God's law read. They would have recited this together. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. This isn't something Paul has invented. No, this has been the standard of God's law for ages. For centuries. Now it's probably helpful to ask at this point, what do we mean when we say God's law? What do we mean when we're talking about that? Well, the law of Moses in, in, in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, contains 613 commandments, right? That's a lot. Let's just boil it down to the Ten Commandments. Most of us are familiar with those. Uh, notice what Paul says right in verse 10. Uh, let's go back to that for a minute. Those who rely on the works of the law are accountable to do how many things? All things written in the law. Every single one. And that's not just quantity, That's quality, too. You have to do all things in the law perfectly, never breaking a single one if you are going to rely on the works of the law. Well, let's ask ourselves for a moment. uh, uh, Do you obey the Ten Commandments? Have you obeyed them perfectly throughout your entire life? You might be thinking, well, I haven't murdered anybody. Right? I, I haven't done that. Uh, I haven't committed adultery, so I'm, I'm probably doing okay. I haven't done the big ones. But this is to lower the standard of God's law. This is to bring it down to a place that, uh, that God has not set it. We can't even get past the first commandment. right? The first commandment being, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods besides me. We can't even obey that commandment. Right? Every time we prioritize something more than God, any time something occupies our mind or our heart more than Him, we fail to keep this command. And we fall into a form of idolatry. We're not worshiping stone statues, but worshiping all manner of other things. We haven't even gotten to the ones about coveting or lying. Right? We can't even get past the first commandment. And to fail in one of God's commandments is to be accountable for all of them. As a lawbreaker. And this is what James says in James chapter 2. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Breaking one of God's laws, even if you keep the rest perfectly, is sufficient to make any one of us a transgressor, a breaker, a violator of God's law. 
under a legal sentence of punishment, a curse. Breaking one. Uh, And that puts things into perspective, doesn't it? Uh, I've talked to people before, and maybe you have as well. And maybe this is even what what you're thinking this morning. Well, I'm a pretty good person. I don't do too many bad things. And, and when I do bad things, I try to make up for them by doing good things. But God's law is a far stricter standard than our standard for ourselves. God says one law broken puts us under condemnation, under a curse. So, so friends, are you relying on your good works, on your idea of law keeping to make you right before God, to get you into heaven? If so, if so, Paul says that you are under a curse, uh, you're in trouble. And this leads us to our next point in verses 11 and 12. Justification comes by faith, not by law. Justification comes by faith, not by law. Based on what we just read in verse 10, verse 11 should not surprise us. Paul says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. It's abundantly clear that nobody is justified before God by works of the law, Paul says. It's impossible. There's not a chance it could happen. And, and, and we've used this word justification. Uh, Pastor Luke used it this morning. I've used it a number of times in this sermon already. Uh, and, and some of you may be familiar with that word. Some may not. What is justification? What does it mean to be justified? Our understanding of this word can really under, uh, affect our whole understanding of salvation. What does it mean to be justified? Uh, James Buchanan, uh, his old dead guy in his book, The Doctrine of Justification, he defines it as a legal or forensic term used in the scriptures to denote the acceptance of anyone as righteous in the sight of God. And then, Very helpfully, right, for us normal people, he boils it down and says it's the acceptance of a sinner as righteous in the sight of God. The acceptance of a sinner as righteous in the sight of God. That's justification. That's justification. That's the question at the heart of the Reformation. And again, the question we should ask today. How is a sinner accepted as righteous in the sight of God? Well, Paul says, at the core... No person is justified by keeping the law. When he says that, he means nobody will be found righteous in God's sight. Nobody will be accepted by God as righteous on the basis of how well they obeyed his law. And there's a couple reasons for this. Uh, The first is, the law is not meant to justify us, but to give us knowledge of our sinfulness. The law is meant to give us knowledge of our inability to keep it. Uh, this is what Paul means in Romans 7, verse 7, when he writes that if, I had, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. The law is a standard by which we're measured against. And when we measure ourselves, we suddenly become aware of how often we fail. Think about it like a speed limit. right? If there's no speed limits, right, uh, which... Sounds pretty good. Uh, and you're, you're just cruising down the freeway as fast as you want. You're not breaking any laws if there's no speed limit. But as soon as those speed limit signs go up, there is now a standard by which your driving is measured against. And were you to continue driving as you did, going you know, 80 and a 45, you will be found guilty of breaking that speed limit. 
God's law is a standard by which our own life is measured against. And when we think about, again, even just the Ten Commandments, it becomes evident quite quickly that we cannot keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. Not even close. The second reason in verse 12 that the law can't justify is because God has not designed it to do so. That's that's not his intent. Uh, Look what Paul says in the second half of the verse. He says, the righteous shall live by faith. Not the righteous shall live by law. Not that uh, faith shall, uh, you know, uh, excuse me, not that, uh, that law will merit for us eternal life, but that the righteous receive eternal life according to their faith, he says. The righteous shall live by faith. Faith is the instrument of our justification, not the law. The law was never supposed to justify us. It was never its, its purpose. And I don't want to cause a church split here, but it's kind of like pineapple on pizza, right? It was never intended by God to be put there. It's just not what it's for. It's through, it's through faith that we receive justification, right? Not the law. Paul cites Habakkuk 2.4 here, and that's the same verse that he quotes in Romans 1, 16 through 17, the very passage that converted Martin Luther. It's not law keepers who are declared righteous, but it is and has always been, even in the Old Testament, those who have faith. Those who have faith. Those who have faith are declared righteous, and those who are declared righteous shall live, and they shall stand in Christ on the day of God's judgment. And, and we want to be careful when we think about this. Because sometimes what we do is we think that God looks at our faith and says, well, that's really good faith. Because your faith is so good... I'm going to save you. And that's not the case at all. Faith is, uh, it's like a tube, right? Like a pipe. And through that pipe, we receive the righteousness of Christ. Through that pipe, we receive salvation. Our faith doesn't earn it for us. It's just the, the vehicle that brings it to us. Now, in contrast, look what Paul says in verse 12. He says, the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Now this is how the law works, and we've touched on this a little bit already. If you're going to try to live by the law, if you're going to try to work your way to heaven and be found righteous by your own obedience, then you need to do all the works of the law and you need to do them perfectly. And if you can do that impossible task, well then sure, yeah, you can be justified by your works. Absolutely. If you're a perfect human being, who can obey God perfectly in your heart, your mind, your, your life, then yeah, absolutely, you'll be, you'll be fine. Uh, but when you fail, which is guaranteed, because we have a sinful nature from, from birth, then you will die by the law, because the law condemns you. And fundamentally, that is why the law is not of faith. Works of the law put the responsibility 100% on your shoulders, on my shoulders, to accomplish our own justification, to make ourselves right with God. It's all up to us. Faith, on the other hand, entrusts the responsibility 100% to another who can accomplish it for you. The Puritan William Perkins describes how this reality uh, sets down the main difference between law and gospel. Here's what he says. He says, The law promises life to him that performs perfect obedience. 
The gospel promises life to him that does nothing in the cause of salvation, but only believes in Christ. The law then requires the doing to salvation and the gospel believing and nothing else. Nothing else. We're not adding our works plus faith. right? We're not adding our works plus the work of Christ. No. It is 100% the work of Christ and trusting Him, believing in Him. And that's why Paul says the law is not of faith in verse 12. Because it's all about doing, not about believing. Faith is all about trusting the work of the one who can actually accomplish what you and I can't. As we look at verse 13, at our next point, we'll see that's exactly where Paul goes. Paul points our attention to the one in whom we must actually have faith. The object of our belief. Number three, Christ redeems us from the curse. Christ redeems us from the curse. Verse 13. Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ redeems us from the curse. Up until verse 13, uh, we've mostly been hearing bad news. right? Mostly been hearing bad news. The curse of the law is unbreakable by our own efforts. God is a holy and and just God with a righteous judgment of our sin. Uh, That's not exactly good news. Uh, Martin Luther, in fact, while he was still a Roman Catholic monk, was oppressed by these things. Uh, He was greatly troubled of God's justice on his sin. Here's what he wrote. You imagine Martin Luther, uh, one of our heroes of the faith, saying this. He says, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt I was a sinner before God with a most disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not live indeed. I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Martin Luther felt the despair of the curse of the law. He almost died because he tried to fast and pray and do all of these things. He he literally tried to work himself to death. And yet none of that gave him peace. None of it made him right before God. And unfortunately for Martin Luther, that period of time in his life, that was the whole picture of who God was. A just and righteous God who punishes sin with no hope of salvation. How could Luther, how could you and I be released from the curse of the law? How could we avoid the righteous judgment of God upon our sin? But in verse 13, hope comes to light. Hope comes to light. Paul paints a picture of our redemption as he describes the work of Christ. Though we could not redeem ourselves from the curse of the law, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Yes, there is a way out from under the law's curse, and it is through Christ. We see that word redeem, and there's a couple of of, of ways that the Bible uses that word. The way it's used here means to obtain the freedom of a person by means of payment. Think of a hostage situation. Okay, a captive is taken. You have to pay the ransom money to free them. Uh, That's the picture here. Christ has redeemed us by paying our debt, by paying our ransom, that we might be made free from the curse of the law. And how does Christ do this? 
How does Christ do this? Well, it starts with His life. Uh, Paul writes in Galatians 4, just a page over, starting in verse 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Uh, God sent His Son, God in the flesh, with a human nature, born of the Virgin Mary, to be born under the law. Think about that. The God who declared the law was born under the law as a man, as a genuine human. Accountable to keep the very same law that you and I are. But here's where it gets good. Where we fail, Christ kept the law perfectly. He kept it perfectly. Uh, Loving God with all of His heart, mind, soul, and strength. Loving His neighbor as Himself. Those things that you and I struggle to do for 30 seconds every day. Christ did perfectly for 30 years. He lived in perfect obedience to God's law in our place. And this is how it's possible for us to be credited with His righteousness. Not ours, His. This is how God can justify us by clothing us, right? Like, like, like with a coat, with a jacket, like a robe, covering us with the righteousness of Christ. And Martin Luther called this an alien righteousness. Not, not E.T., but a legal righteousness that comes from outside of us. A righteousness that is not ours. We didn't produce it. But it's a gift received through faith. A a credit in our account. But as great as this is, it wouldn't be enough if God gave us the righteousness of Christ. Because how would the punishment for our disobedience, how would the curse of our past law-breaking and future law-breaking, how would that be done away with? God is a just God. He doesn't just make our sin uh, vanish. It has to be paid for somehow. This is the other side of the coin. This is the other facet of Christ's redemption, his death. Paul says something that's absolutely incredible, and and frankly, it's something that's borderline offensive when you think about it. Look what Paul says in verse 13. He says, Christ became a curse for us. Christ became a curse for us. Now, now wait a minute. Didn't we just say that Christ lived a perfect life? That's exactly why Paul's words here are shocking. That Christ, the perfect and holy Son of God, without blemish, without spot, without sin, who never had an evil thought or desire in His life, became a curse for us. Bearing our sins from the small to the great. As 1 Peter says, bearing those sins in his body on the tree. And as Christians, that's a central part of what we believe. But Paul takes it a step further. Calvin writes that Paul does not say that Christ was cursed, but which is still more, that he was a curse. Intimating the curse of all men was laid upon him. Christ does not just become one cursed man, bearing the sin load of one person. No. Christ becomes the curse Himself. He bears the sinful guilt and curse of all of His people. Of all of them. Every single one. Even the most horrific sin is included here. 
Christ doesn't just die for little white lies. He doesn't just die for a little jealousy, a little anger. No, He becomes the curse, dying for all the sins of His people, for monstrous sins, for the worst of the worst. Christ becomes a curse. That's His humility, His love, the amazing and absolutely shocking grace of the cross of Jesus Christ. And and those two little words, for us, For us. Friend, whether you're a Christian or not, I pray that you would see yourself in those two words, for us. That you would see yourself as under the curse were it not for the redemption that is in Christ. If you are a Christian, these two little words should bring such peace to your soul that Christ became a curse for you, for me. For us. And while this requires us to acknowledge, yes, we are sinners, it should also lead us to have joy and assurance. If you're not a Christian, these two little words should bring you to see that there is hope for you. To repent of your sin, to trust in Christ, to save you. He became a curse for you. Do you ever wonder about Christ's love for you? Do you ever secretly question if He could really care about you? He accepts most of who you are, sure, but there's those couple little things from your past that He just, He's still mad about that. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever wonder if He really died for all of your sins, especially the ones nobody knows about, the ones that, that you might secretly still be trying to do penance for? Find assurance in knowing this, that Christ willingly and lovingly and sacrificially became a curse for you. He knew what He was doing. He knew what He was getting Himself into. He knew all of the sins that He would be dying for, as small or as great as they may be. He knew He was dying a death reserved for the worst criminals. And He did it willingly. Becoming a curse for us. And Paul quotes here from Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23. Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Uh, To understand the full impact of what he's saying, let's just turn there for a moment. Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy chapter 21. Moses is is delivering the law to the people. And here's what he says, starting in verse 22 of chapter 21. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, under the Old Covenant, it was the most horrifying, the most rebellious sins, the most serious violations of the law that were punishable by death. These were the worst of the worst things. What Deuteronomy is describing is a cultural practice. The Israelites uh, didn't crucify people. They would usually stone people to death. 
That was generally the way they went about things. But then what they would do is they would hang the body, the criminal, on a, on a tree, on a stake, publicly displaying that person as a sign that because of their law-breaking, they were under the curse of God. So this verse isn't so much concerned about the method of execution, but really the public display of a criminal as a sign of God's condemnation. Now think about how what Paul is saying, how he's quoting that verse and how that applies to Christ. When Christ died as a curse for his people, for us, this wasn't a secret thing between the Father and the Son, done in a back room, out of sight. This was done publicly, in the most public way possible at the time. Raised on a cross on a hill, spat upon, mocked, despised. Yet those who behold Him and in faith trust Him to be the curse for them, not despising Him, but seeing their need for Him, to those He gives His righteousness. To those who believe upon Christ, redemption from the curse comes. Only He is able to redeem you from the curse of the law. But He is more than sufficient. Christ's life and death is really the pinnacle of God's redemptive plan. The culmination of God's plan to save His people. Look at verse 14. Paul writes, So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Last point, Christ brings us salvation through faith. Christ brings us salvation through faith. Martin Luther said that blessing comes when the curse is removed and that's what we see here in Christ. We're redeemed from the curse and what comes in its place? Blessing. Blessing. And now that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, these two blessings of salvation uh, that we see here in verse 14 come. The first one that Paul mentions is the blessing of Abraham coming to the Gentiles. Nearly 2,000 years before Christ's birth, God appeared to Abraham, a seemingly random man in the desert, right, in the land of Ur. And God made a promise to him, many promises in fact, but one of those promises we find in Genesis 12, 3. God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. And those who dishonor you, I will curse. And in you, this is the important part, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in this one promise, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In this one promise, so much is contained. So much is contained. Now this blessing is for all the families of the earth. This isn't talking about the nuclear family, right? Each, uh, you know, a couple with children or something like that. Uh, No, this is every tribe, every people group. Every nation, tribe, and tongue will be blessed through Abraham. It's for all kinds of people. But what is this blessing? Uh, Well, Paul tells us in Galatians 3, just a few verses back, starting in verse 7. Look what he says there. He says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what is this blessing? Verse 8 told us. The justification of the Gentiles by faith. By faith. That's the blessing Paul's talking about in verse 14. 
And, and certainly there were Gentiles here and there in the Old Testament who were, who were justified by their faith. But God's primary focus was on the nation of Israel, right, during that period of time. But we see in the Old Testament that in the future, far off, God's plan has always been to bring salvation to the Gentiles. It's always been in view for the future. It's not plan B, that's plan A. God doesn't have backup plans. God's work in the cross, right, in fulfilling the law and bearing its curse wasn't just for the Jews, but for Gentiles too. Paul says in Romans 2.15, the Gentiles, right, meaning everybody, still has the law written on their hearts. Which means that they're still under the condemnation of curse from the law that is written on their hearts. And what's God's purpose in Christ? But to redeem a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. A people that reflects his creative diversity. That's always been God's plan. And that's good news for the majority of you who are not Jewish, right? There's salvation for the Gentiles. Uh, Since before the fall of Adam, this has been God's plan. And with the redemption of Christ, with his birth, his life, his death, the time had come. And the gospel, which which, we must believe in order to be justified, goes out to all people through the preaching of the apostles, like Paul. And with the salvation of the Gentiles, with the justification by faith that comes to them by grace, there's another blessing in verse 14. That we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Right? That's the second blessing, the Holy Spirit. God gives His Holy Spirit to all His people. With the removal of the curse through Christ's redemption, God pours out His Spirit in a new and unique way at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. There's a new moment in redemptive history. Now, God's Spirit's always been with His people. But God's Spirit has not always dwelled inside His people. And that's what Paul is talking about. We call this the indwelling of the Spirit. And and notice that Paul says this is a promised thing. This is something that God's people have been looking forward to for ages. Something that the Old Testament prophets talked about. Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah 44. He says, speaking for the Lord, I will pour water on the thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. What is this? This is God promising to make a new covenant people for himself. Not marked by circumcision like the old covenant, but marked by the Holy Spirit dwelling in them as a seal of their election and their faith in Christ. It's really an amazing thing. Christ's work, the redemption that is in Him, the coming of the Holy Spirit, these are not just interesting blips in history. This is the culmination of God's redemptive plan. Now friend, do you see your need to belong to God's plan of redemption? Do you find yourself in the middle of that plan, resting in Christ alone? Resting in His finished work, enjoying the blessings of the salvation, or or striving anxiously to complete the work yourself. Really, it is an amazing thing that we have been given such a Savior in whom we can have full trust to redeem us. Even though the Protestant Reformation happened five centuries ago, the question of how we are saved, how we're justified before God, is still an important one, is it not? 
humanity always gravitates towards relying on our works, thinking we are good enough in ourselves. But God's law is like an infinitely great ladder. And we are like somebody who is fully paralyzed. We can't even begin to climb the first rung. And then Christ comes along and by faith picks us up and carries us to the top of the ladder himself. We do nothing but trust him. And by faith in him, we receive his righteousness. By faith in him, we are justified. Because it is Christ who redeems us. It's Christ who was born for us, who died a curse for us, who rose again triumphant for us, and who will return for us. In all this we receive through faith. So brothers and sisters, look to nothing. Look to no one but the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem you. He is all sufficient. Be justified by faith in Him alone. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, You are a gracious God who is not only able to redeem Your people, but who has done so in the work of Christ. Our Lord, we we know that we still may fight that tendency sometimes to to, uh, want to win Your grace, to want to uh, assure ourselves of entrance into heaven by trying to work our way there. But Lord... You show us something far better, the promise of righteousness in Christ that we receive through faith. Lord, may we always trust in Him. May we never depart from this. And may we glean the assurance, the comfort that is there for us. Lord, we thank You for Christ, Your Son, and pray these things in His name. Amen.